Thank you for downloading Spotlight, the podcast from Revolving Doors Agency, produced on behalf of Barrow Cadbury Trust. I'm Nick Minter. The mission at Revolving Doors is to research and share evidence of effective ways to improve services for people stuck in the revolving door of crisis and crime. How? By working with national and local government, policymakers, commissioners, academic researchers and people with lived experience. It's work that helps other organisations make life-changing differences. Since 2012, Revolving Doors has been working with police and crime commissioners across the country to improve the experience of young adults and those in the revolving door of personal crisis and crime. We'd love to hear what you think, so please join the discussion on Twitter using the hashtag PCCSpotlight and our handle at RevDoors. Today, the spotlight is on police and crime commissioners and the role they can play in convening partners to help break the cycle of crisis and crime. We'll be hearing from five PCCs from across the country who are demonstrating what can be achieved when agencies and individuals with relevant skills work together. We'll hear about the issues facing PCCs. Some police forces estimate that cases involving mental health are around a third to 40% of all their time. It costs £40 billion annually for violence against women and girls. It can be a very, very quick downward spiral for somebody once they lose their home. The challenges. It's about trying to make sure that we're adding value and that we're not subsidising NHS service provision. Putting people through the system needlessly doesn't deliver any particular results. And the successes. And I continue to fund that project for another year so that they could help even more people. Because people have seen so many good examples of sort of work we have collectively done, then it makes life a lot easier. But first, Sat is 39 and he's from Leicester. Sat has been in prison three times. He told me his story. Lost my relationship, lost my home of five and a half years, my job of three and a half years. One thing led to another self-medicating, my depression. That got me involved in the actual distribution of drugs, mainly to clear debts and stuff like that. But again, nevertheless, I was caught for it. And they felt that the only place for me was prison. It just felt, you know, like there was nobody out there who cared. In a very simple way, the company, the banks, the police, the courts... Throughout the whole of that journey there, and then, you know, me sitting in my cell thinking, surely somebody of these must have seen I'm a human being. I've gone through a lot of difficult things just recently, and um, this is out of character behaviour. This is a crime of necessity. So it was really kind of um, unsettling. It was um, destabilising, you know. I was failed right from my company not having compassion for me. The banking sector, even though I'd paid for the protection, they didn't activate that. Though that the police and the, and, the, and the courts and everything, they saw my financial difficulties, the loss of my employment, things like that, they didn't even act on their own observations. Um, this is why I believe there should be alternatives, because this is very expensive to the taxpayer, um, and, and the system's ineffective. Substance misuse is a topic that often divides opinion. For David Jameson... Police and Crime Commissioner for the West Midlands, it's one that needs priority attention. In the country as a whole, about every fourth hour, uh, somebody dies of poisoning. In the West Midlands, every three days, somebody's dying of drug poisoning. And substance misuse is growing in our area. 
and we are seeing the cost of it and the cost of the public services and the cost to human life expanding. The estimate by the Home Office was made five years ago, and in the West Midlands, the cost to the police, the prisons, probation, health, all the public services that deal with just people taking crack cocaine and heroin, we're paying about £1.4 billion per year for those services. And, you know, I'm challenging now anybody to say that that money is being well spent. What we have had over many years in this country, we haven't had much of a grown-up adult conversation about drugs. Uh, we accuse people of being soft on drugs and other people say we're tough on drugs. There's no proper dialogue in the middle where we're having this grown-up conversation about what we can actually do. Alongside this drive for early prevention is a potentially more controversial scheme. David is advocating the provision of heroin-assisted treatment, which would be administered by the local health service. This would see a number of long-term drug users being prescribed a small amount of the drug in a controlled clinical environment. That means a number of things. One, it means that they're getting clean needles uh, and they're not spreading diseases like hepatitis or if they're seen in places like Scotland, HIV is still a big uh, problem there, spreading it with uh, needles. Uh, Two, it's in a clinical setting. And also there's advice there to those people to help them and assist them perhaps with uh, how to handle their their habit and possibly assisting them with how they can renormalize their life and become more established and look after their families, look after themselves. So the the heroin-assisted treatment, we're doing a review of that. What we should see, of course, and here's the, the big plus, better treatment for those people who are on the drug, but then the real cost saving comes to the taxpayer when half more burglaries in our area are just people trying to get the next fix of drugs. And that's also true of shoplifting. So it'll be reducing harm. It'll be actually treating people as having a medical need and reducing cost at the same time. Given that it's a polarising topic, David's needed to build a network of support across the board. This has involved working with statutory bodies, voluntary organisations and other interested parties. We are working in our area very closely with the CCGs to start with and then with the local council and as well with some voluntary groups who uh, help uh, people addicted to uh, drugs. And the voluntary bodies are helping identify people. Uh, Local authorities, of course, have got their own uh, services and because mainly it's going to be the health service who operate this because once they start prescribing um, a drug that will be parallel to uh, what they've been taking, once they start doing that, that is a commitment they make for life as long as that person wants it. The work we're doing, certainly on heroin-assisted treatment, we're doing the convening work. The police do have an involvement with it. Uh, the police have got to be on board, perhaps, and also in identifying people and helping people. So there is a, a job for them there, but most of it is convening people, bringing them together, and helping people realise this is a way to reduce harm and actually reduce cost. Working with so many partner organisations in such a politically charged field is no small challenge. But David believes that PCCs have an almost unique opportunity to help execute these kinds of projects. What is different about the uh, PCC role in comparison to other elected roles is that we have, firstly, a, a very big electorate. My post is the second biggest directly elected post in the whole country, second only to the um, Mayor of London. 
And that gives you a certain amount of uh, convening power, if you like. It gives a certain uh, authority to what you do. I think good police and crime commissioners are using that to good effect in their area as a convener of other people in absence of anybody else very often that can do this job locally. Some of the local mayors uh, will do that, and that's terrific, that's good. But the PCCs cover the whole country, and we have that power uh, to bring people together. In Cambridgeshire, focus is being directed at the problems associated with homelessness. People in the revolving door frequently experience insecure, unsafe or transient home lives. They also often sleep rough. New Ministry of Justice data obtained by Revolving Doors Agency shows the known rates of rough sleeping on release from prison for people sentenced to less than six months had increased 20-fold in the last 18 months. The PCC here is Jason Abelwhite, and he told me why his focus was on housing. For a lot of people, it is a very fine line between having a home or not, and we know that Um, In terms of revolving doors, one of the biggest challenges we have is housing. And it is somebody who has a chaotic and unstable existence, then having that stability and, and frankly, having a roof over your head is, is that stability. It can be a very, very quick downward spiral for somebody once they lose their home whether that's from a health point of view, whether that's from a security point of view, whether that then leads to homelessness, especially if you're a single male. So it is, for a lot of people, a very fine line. And that fine line between stability and chaos might be even finer than you think. Jason told me about a man who was under threat of eviction and subsequent homelessness because he had rent arrears of just £100. If you think of the cost, the wholesale cost of the system of not just tackling that simple issue for someone, so they lose their home, they then are subject to being looked after by a local authority, huge cost of that. If their life goes down uh, hill as a consequence uh, and they suffer mental illness, huge cost to authorities. If they then get into criminality, huge cost to policing, huge cost to the criminal justice system, huge cost to society. So it's, it is incumbent of us to deal with the small issues that potentially lead to much bigger ones and obviously a much bigger cost implication and societal implication down the track. In 2017, Jason helped establish the Homeless Trailblazer project with the stated aim of making homelessness the unacceptable outcome. I asked him who the project was aimed at. It is something that's aimed at anybody that's, that's homeless, um, frankly. Um, and it's, it's supposed to be a, a multi-agency approach that um, picks people up. It is also about prevention as well, which is absolutely key. But actually picking people up and giving them the help and they support, a multi-agency approach to solving some of the core issues of why people are out on the streets. So again, it comes back to, you know, mental health, dealing with drug and alcohol misuse, can be debt quite often these days as well, that, you know, pushes people out and their life just spirals downwards. So again, very much a multi-agency approach to tackling the, the core issues. Not that these core issues are easy to address. Criminal justice agencies have particular challenges. You know, the police will pick someone up when they, you know, uh, when they sort of get into criminality. Uh, they will safeguard them if they're at risk. 
but actually as a multi-agency, we don't really know, I think, how to deal with it. So it does bring some challenges. Identifying complex needs and finding ways to tackle them will, perhaps, always bring challenges. And overcoming challenges requires leadership. So, does Jason, as the Police and Crime Commissioner, have an advantage? Does his role give him powers of persuasion that others might lack? I think because of the, the role, because of the role of the Police and Crime Commissioner, um, is something that when you send out letters, when you send out meeting requests, that people are obliged to attend uh, in legislation. You can convene meetings for people to do that. But I think the way in which we operate in Cambridge, which is very much in partnership, I think because people have seen so many good examples of uh, the sort of work we have collectively done, then it makes life a lot easier. You know, you can't just wave a stick at people um, and they will ultimately come to the table. You've got to give them the reason to come to the table. Uh, and quite often, if you can say, look, there's a pot of money attached to this, then it does sort of um, focus the mind of some of our partners to think, actually, we've got two or three people in that department that could work on this. Um, and it is very much, I think, from from my point of view, you've got to start with the outcome. What what do you want? What does good look like? What what outcome do you want? Uh, and then you work back from that. You have to have uh, partners who want to work together. And sometimes that's challenging because I think even in times of less money, there's always this challenge around people still working in silos and working on their own little individual things rather than thinking about, right, how can we better work together? So that is a challenge, but that's part of my role to unblock the issues uh, that individual partners might have. It can be hard to successfully convene partners for any kind of multi-agency project, even when all parties are in complete agreement and all working towards the same end goal. But Jason also needs to work with groups that have their own agendas. After all, for every tenant falling behind with their rent, there's a landlord who's owed money. And it's always a challenge when when you're talking about the uh, private sector. But I think having, again, a mechanism which draws in uh, the right people, so you could go through letting agents and things like that, uh, which then sort of uh, get the interest of uh, landlords, especially those that have got... Uh, a lot of housing, um, and of course you bring in the um, registered providers, as they're now called as well, who can provide sort of help and support. But again, all with their own challenges around, you know, ultimately wanting to secure their rents uh, every month. So it is, it's a, it's a challenge. But we've been very lucky in Cambridgeshire that we've had really good engagement. If anyone wants to get involved in these in these projects, then um, it's I would say the more the merrier, because the more agencies you have involved, the more third sets you have involved, uh, then the uh, the better the outcome for the the individuals, and the wider we can we can put the net um, to make sure that we um, tackle these these issues straight on. What can I do um, for these individuals? I'm the glue, if you like, um, in terms of the agencies coming together. So I can glue them together um, and we can work better as a consequence of the, uh, of the work that we do as an office. Another PCC who's attempting to glue agencies together in the hope of getting results is Dame Vera Baird. As PCC for Northumbria, she's busy tackling the problem of violence against women and girls. 
Violence against women and girls obviously has a number of aspects, domestic violence, sexual abuse, trafficking and modern slavery, sexual exploitation of young women and so on. And and they all have traumatising impact, the impact on society of which is something like 1.2 million women who suffer domestic violence every year, 450,000 women um, who are sexually abused every year is very significant in terms of input into work and uh, how families are distorted by it. But if you look at the impact on society in a straightforward way, the figures suggest it costs £40 billion annually for violence against women and girls. Compared to the national picture, Northumbria has, uh, I think, if anything, a slightly higher rate of prevalence, but it's very hard to judge. We have improved the police offer to victims over the last few years. So we've increased the numbers who are reporting, but we have roughly 32,000 reports of domestic abuse every year, which is sort of two and a half thousand a month. And levels of rape are are pretty much uh, in accordance with the national level too. So it's a problem for us as it's a problem for everyone. It's also a problem that's exacerbated when victims of violence go on to commit an offence. Something Ali, who's 35 and from Suffolk, knows all about. I got into a domestic violent relationship. The police would then get involved, you know, when neighbours called them or I'd called them when he'd, you know, stabbed me and all sorts of stuff like that. I then became an addict. If I didn't partake, he would, you know, beat me or, you know, just hurl abuse at me. Um, And if I did... I was equally as bad and would get as much abuse. My mental health was affecting my work. Obviously, my addiction was affecting my work. The company I was working for weren't exactly legit and I kind of got embroiled in the not knowing what I was doing to then me getting the blame for it. I had a knock on the door from the police and that's when I was arrested. It was for fraud. Kept on bail for a year where my mental health and my addiction spiralled and then me being sent to prison for it. Vera Baird's solution to stories like this is to offer diversionary support and to do it early. Hence the introduction of a women's conditional caution. You can take a caution uh, for this offence on the condition that you will go to have the needs you have assessed in the women's hub. And, I mean, I have to say I worried about that in the first place. You can only, where it's a small offence and it's a caution, put a condition on it that's proportionate to the offence that's been committed. So you can't say you have a caution on condition that you go on an alcohol and drugs and relationships course for the next three years. It has to be proportionate. But the hub said to me, let them go there and don't worry, because if they come and their needs are assessed properly, they will come back voluntarily to try to get some attention to what their needs have been. We intend, if we can to go south, as it were, of a conditional caution and look at women who might take a community resolution. So get women at an earlier stage before they're even in the caution territory, right at the bottom, their very first offence perhaps, and get those coming into the hub for an assessment too. Now, lots of those I would suspect we'll have to bring in. 
As with all the initiatives covered in this podcast, VIA is needed to convene a large number of partner organisations, large and small, to maximise the impact. She told me that finding these partners has been, and still is, a work in progress. We were new kids on the block as police and crime commissioners only quite recently and not a lot of people understood what we were for. When we got responsibility for victim services in 2015, we then needed to reach out to a lot of groups who could be helpful to victims who were already dealing with victims. And that's given us a bedrock of good contacts from which we can develop the diversionary schemes we have, which are complex and they do need input from almost everybody so clearly you have to have the police on board so they will consider a caution and not a prosecution you really need the cps to be not pressing the police to deal with a particular kind of crime by sending it on to court on the other hand you need also to make very clear that whatever is the underlying drive needs to be tackled. And if it is domestic abuse, clearly we need to send somebody on to women's aid, up in our way, Wayside Women in Need, organisations that are expert in that so the root causes can be tackled. But if those impacts have already got so severe that there are health issues, we need to engage them. We have found perhaps the health sector more difficult to get engaged with than some of the other sectors. They tend to be pretty, you know, orthodox in their thinking about what is a health issue. But we've done some very good things. So we offered to fund for a couple of years having independent domestic violence advisors located in health sectors. So we've got three in accidents and emergency hospitals. We've got three in general practices and we paid for that and the medical sector has found that very beneficial because they were in a position where frequently people were coming with injuries or lots of evidence of domestic abuse. They didn't know what to do about it and now they do and they know who to pass people on to. So in that way we've managed to try and you know to build good relationships. They know we'll help them and so they're ready to help us. Building and maintaining good relationships to form effective multi-agency partnerships takes time, effort, trust. But if you're listening to this wanting to get involved in a local initiative, Vera has a message. Don't forget to make yourself known. Your police and crime commissioner needs to know that you're there. You may not be big enough to bid for a particular contract if there's contracting to be given, but you may be able to bunch together with some others to join in um, a bigger contract, or you may be able to apply for a grant. Many PCCs like me understand that there are jobs that require a lot of cash that need to be commissioned, maybe there's competition, but we will give priority to local consortia if we can. But we know too that there are absolutely invaluable community organisations which have to be grant funded and they have to have a really simple application form because otherwise they spend all their time not doing the job they want to do with their customers, but applying for funding. I'm sure most of my colleague PCCs understand that. And so there's no organisation working in any of those territories who shouldn't make themselves known to the PCC. Here's Ali again. 
if someone with a lived experience had come along and spoken to me or you know just somehow intervened early on and I don't think I would have ever got to that stage. So many people do not need to be in prison. So many people need to get that help in the community. And I'm not saying to go unpunished. That's that's not at all what we're saying. What we're saying is, you know, yes, there's been a crime committed. Yes, there are circumstances behind that. Community payback. You know, something that helps you address those issues that you have. And then you're not destroying a life. You're not destroying a family. You're not making someone lose a home. You know, you're not destroying young kids who've lost a parent or anything like that. You're really, really helping someone. And, you know, I think if you want to make society feel a lot better, then why not help those who are committing the offences by becoming better people? Mental health is a topic that's getting more and more attention these days, both from the media and across the wider public. It's also demanding more attention within the criminal justice system. In Kent... Police and Crime Commissioner Matthew Scott has been spearheading an initiative to address the challenges mental health issues cause in the community. The demand on policing as a result of cases involving mental health is increasing and the problem is multifaceted. Uh, In the past it may well have been causes for concern, missing persons and crisis. But the challenge is changing. We're seeing increases in some of those areas where these cases are, are linked to mental health but also we're seeing particularly nasty criminal organisations who are targeting specifically vulnerable people to commit offences for them. Some police forces estimate that cases involving mental health are around a third to 40% of all their time. Uh, And what we need to do is work together to understand what the challenges are as they affect the front line and how we're going to work with partners in order to overcome them. I set up the Mental Health and Policing Fund as my response to uh, helping Kent Police deal with some of these sources of demand. I take the view that um, crime prevention is vitally important, but given the way in which policing has changed, we need to try and prevent other sources of demand as well and try and, particularly with uh, vulnerable people, point them in the right direction so they can get the right care from the right person at the right time. So it's a three-year project, a quarter of a million pounds every single year, and there are a number of different projects that will uh, and already are supporting the police in reducing demand from crisis cafes to training to outreach work. They're all starting to have an impact. Having an impact on the lives of vulnerable people is obviously to be applauded. But it might leave some people questioning whose job it is to help. Why, they ask, is this a police and crime issue? Shouldn't mental health be addressed by the health sector? I think it's about trying to make sure that we're adding value and that we're not subsidising NHS service provision. I've made it absolutely clear that this is about providing complementary services that benefit policing and not filling gaps in the provision of statutory services. Uh, And I think that that has been well respected. I've had to make sure that that message was clear. But what it's actually done is it's driven some really good responses from the community instead. Given that mental health issues are often complex and sometimes hard to define, it might be difficult for Matthew to know what's working and what isn't. So, from a police and crime perspective, what does success look like when we talk about mental health? Success will look different in different areas. So, to take the example of the Dover Outreach Centre, for example, cognitive behavioural therapy is time-consuming. It requires specialist advice and training for an individual to be able to carry it out. Uh, And they've worked with a small cohort of people who were homeless in the Dover area and sleeping rough. And of the 13 people that completed the training, uh, nine were no longer in contact with the police. There were 
eight have moved into housing and jobs. So in those circumstances, I think you can point to some very early successes, and I continue to fund that project for another year so that they could help even more people. In terms of uh, some of the uh, other successes, for example, a crisis cafe or well-being cafe, the fact that more people are coming in through the door to talk, I think, is a success in itself. The overall measure is whether or not it's going to be successful in reducing demand on policing. I think that there are some cases of uh, that taking place. However, my concern is, is that for all of the demand that we are mopping up and preventing, there is just so much more of it coming from other sources due to a lack of availability of, of health care and also social services referrals. So we'll continue to fight the good fight. Clearly not an area in which problems can be eradicated overnight, or perhaps ever, but a vital one nonetheless. I asked Matthew what a reduction in mental health issues would mean, both on the individuals affected and on the work of Kent Police. The benefit is is that policing has the ability to uh, respond to other incidents. So for, uh, for all those times that they're not spent waiting for 136 week to become available, that they're not waiting for A&E treatment, which in some months can be as, as long as 7 hours, 40 minutes on average, that you're taking police officers on the street. It means that they can do more community policing, they can respond to more crimes, and they can prevent victims from becoming uh, victims of crime in the first place. It's a benefit for everybody. In words that seem to echo Vera Baird's message in Northumbria, Matthew told me that collaboration was key, but that for any PCC to benefit from the experience of a partner, the PCC first needs to know that that partner is there. The message is is that you're pushing at an open door. Uh, If you look at police and crime plans, if you look at the work that my colleagues as police and crime commissioners are doing, we all recognise that mental health and policing is a key issue. If you can come up with proposals which are well-costed and that provide a real benefit to them, I think that there'll be a willingness to listen and learn. You know, if you've got ideas that will help push this even further, go and see your PCC. Mental health violence against women and girls, homelessness and substance misuse. So far, we've heard four PCCs talk about projects, each with a very specific focus. In Durham, Commissioner Ron Hogg has established a scheme that he hopes will reduce crime and re-offending rates across a range of offences. The scheme is called Checkpoint, and it promotes the concept of deferred prosecution for young adults. Yeah, the concept of deferred prosecution is all about ensuring that people don't uh, necessarily enter the criminal justice system as a matter of course. And um, what we do is we, we offer them an alternative pathway, but if they actually fail to meet the conditions of that pathway, then we hold the right to prosecute them as we would have done normally. It's, it's what we call the sort of Damocles holding over them in order to um, help change their behaviour. At the moment, it's for um, those between 18 and 25 years, roughly. We look at a range of offences, theft of motor vehicle, public order offences, neglect of children, which is an interesting and and sometimes controversial one. We found a woman in Darlington, drunk in charge of three children under the age of about seven. Uh, Had we gone down the normal course of prosecution, etc., the children would have been taken into care, the family would have been broken up, the taxpayer would have been paying an awful lot of a lot more money. So what we did actually, we had a multi-agency meeting to see actually is this a suitable case for um, a checkpoint, an out-of-court disposal through checkpoint, and the answer was yes. So the woman then engaged with us, 
Um, she's now receiving treatment for her alcohol problem. The children go to school on time. She's engaging with all the statutory agencies, which she'd never done before. So you can see how at, at that very low level, and it is that sort of low-level neglect, that we, we can actually operate this for the benefit of all concerned. Critics of deferred prosecution argue that it fails to suitably punish offenders and that it can encourage others to offend, safe in the knowledge that they won't be prosecuted. So is this not a scheme that effectively says Durham police are being soft on crime? Putting people through the system needlessly doesn't uh, deliver any particular results. And I, I speak as someone who spent 30 years in the police service who entered that profession with very much with a view, prosecute, bang them away, and that's the way to deal with the problem. That is not the way to deal with the problem. It's to look at addressing the underlying causes of, the, of their behaviour and seeking to work with them because most people do actually just need that bit of a helping hand. The Checkpoint Scheme, in common with the other projects we've heard about today, came about as the result of a partnership approach. Now there are plans for Checkpoint to be trialled in other parts of the UK. Something Ron says could only happen by agencies working together. In order to bring agencies together, it's about understanding what each of us can deliver, but realising that we can deliver better if we work together. And that is the, that is the premise upon which we seek to go forward. Um, and then when you begin to see the results, the outcomes, some of the examples which I've, I've described, the fact that we're looking at reduction in reoffending rates of about 9%, you can then begin to win them over by the, 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 the results that they see before them. And, and there are benefits to each of those agencies because it reduces demand on them. And at the end of the day, we really just want people to help stabilize their lives. If we look traditionally across reoffending rates, they've stuck very stubbornly. And to have this 9% reduction is really something which is quite, quite exceptional. It's got to the point now that the Ministry of Justice, who recognise and praise the system, are looking for forces to pilot a similar uh, scheme, uh, uh, and we have about 25 forces interested, but only 10 will be allocated. So we've really managed to influence uh, Ministry of Justice uh, thinking on this. Not that it's all been plain sailing. Yeah, there have been real obstacles in, in, in getting partners together because uh, when you're looking at working partnerships, sometimes the pace is dictated by the slowest. And um, that, that is really, really frustrating. And particularly as a police service, which has a, a very can-do attitude, then that can be particularly frustrating. So there has been a long, long road to get to where we are. But it is about, as you say, engaging with our partner agencies, analysing how we can improve things, putting forward suggestions. And actually, from our point of view, from the point of view of myself, the Chief Constable, it's about a calculated professional risk using our judgment gained over a vast number of years. Um, we have made this risk assessment and felt that this is the way to go forward and this will deliver. And then it's about persuading partners. But once we've seen the initial uh, results, that uh, persuasion has ceased to be necessary and they're fully on board and supportive. And once more, the message coming across loud and clear is that PCCs, for all their power, prestige and experience, are always going to rely on the specialist skills and knowledge of various agencies and individuals. We've heard a little about some of the successes multi-agency working can bring about. But for that to continue, it's incumbent on each of those agencies to keep showing how they can help. I think for agencies uh, across the country who have particular skill sets, 
um, who can actually contribute to reductions in, in reoffending, can assist with uh, uh, working with uh, offenders. I would really be knocking on the door of your local police and crime commissioner and um, stating what you can actually sh uh, display to them. Because one of the things that is difficult for any police and crime commissioner is to understand the full scope of services out there within the community. So I think there is um, an onus really on such small organizations with a real key specialist skills to say, hey, I'm here, come and work with me and let's work for the betterment of our communities and individuals within them. Thank you for listening to this Revolving Doors Spotlight podcast produced on behalf of the Barrow Cadbury Trust. If you'd like to know more about the role that PCCs can play in convening partners to help break the cycle of crisis and crime, we've produced a PCC review. You'll find it on our website, revolving-doors.org.uk. Just search there under the tab that says Our Publications for the Spotlight Review of Police and Crime Plans. You can also find out more from the Transition to Adulthood Alliance. Their website is t2a.org.uk. From me, Nick Minter, goodbye.